passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. If you're new this morning, my name is Kurt and I'm one of the pastors. It's good to have you. Um, at Crosswinds, we are always talking about our goal is to reach people with Jesus. We want people in our community to know about what Jesus Christ has, has done for them. And there's a lot of creative ways we do that. And I want to just share you, with you a story about something that's going on the Spencer campus that's really neat. It all begins with this. Uh, how many of you like Chinese food? Chinese friends? Okay. Well, there's a family on the Spencer campus that really likes Chinese. Uh, they actually have a favorite Chinese restaurant that they go to frequently. They also have a son. And it turns out that the Chinese couple that owns this restaurant and works in the restaurant also has a son too. And these boys are about the same age. So before you know it, this family on our Spencer campus and the owners of the Chinese restaurant through their kids started to develop a little relationship together. That eventually led to them saying to the uh, Chinese mother and her son, why don't your kids come on, your, kid, your son come on over to our house and have a play date? And they, they did. That eventually led to them saying, we go to church on Sunday. Do you want to come to church with us? And they said, yes. Now there's a small problem. This Chinese woman doesn't speak much English. And so she's a little lost, especially during the sermon. So they had an idea. There's these things on your phone called translator apps. And so when Pastor Jordan is preaching in Spencer, they're using a translator app so she can get the same sermon in Chinese. And the family has been there for the last six weeks, almost two months, every week, hearing about the good news of Jesus. Isn't that great? That's exciting. Folks, this is what reaching with people with Jesus is about. It's just building relationships with our neighbors, maybe being friendly to the waitress who's serving you at a Chinese restaurant. You never know where God can take that and how he can open a door so people can hear about Jesus and be born again. This morning, we're continuing in our study of 2 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 4. You can take out your outlines, and if you need to get out your paper Bible or your phone Bible, go ahead and do that. I'm going to begin with a little bit of background because I know a number of people are coming back after the winter, and you, this is part of a long story. So you need to understand the context of the story before you're going to be able to get to the meaning of the story. 1 Samuel is about the story of the nation of Israel's first king a man named Saul. He was anointed king, but then quickly rejected by God as king for his disobedience. By the time we had to, we're in 1 Samuel 16, God had anointed a new king named David. But the rest of 1 Samuel was this tension between Saul actually still being on the throne, but David being anointed king. Saul was jealous of David. Saul eventually hated David and was committed to murdering and killing David. But by it all ended at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul ended up dying in battle. We picked up 2 Samuel, and at that point, David had just heard about Saul dying in battle. And he asked God, is it time for me to return to Israel? And he did. He returned to Israel, and one tribe recognized him as king. That was the southernmost tribe of Judah. But the 11 northern tribes 
didn't recognize him. Saul's army commander, a man named Abner, was organizing them and uh, leading them sort of in opposition to David. Uh, that went on for five years. At the end of five years, to sort of legitimize his rule, Abner decided he would install the one final living son of King Saul as king, a man named Ishbosheth. But the truth is, Ishbosheth wasn't really in charge, he was just a puppet. Abner was still large and in charge and in control. And Abner and Ishbosheth decided to kick off a, a civil war to, to try and attack David in the southern kingdom of Judah and see if they would destroy David. Well, it, that was a bloody two years of civil war. And while at first it didn't look good for the southern kingdom of Judah because it was 11 tribes versus one tribe, uh, God saw fit to sustain David and protect David and slowly diminish the northern tribes. Abner saw the writing was on the wall. His side is losing, so he decided he would defect, defect to join David. This was last week. And he, when he went to defect, he actually had brokered a peace plan to try and bring all 12 tribes together under David. But right when that was about ready to get done, after he and David had met, Joab, one of, uh, one of David's army commanders, unexpectedly assassinated Abner. Now we're in a tough spot. What will happen with the civil war in the nation? Uh, the peace plan, it's in question. Because Abner, the one who was brokering it, is now dead. That's where we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Everything is on, ash, on edge. What will happen next? What's the right way forward? David really can't take his troops and march up north and try and throw Ishbosheth off the throne. Uh, that would just reignite civil war. He's sort of in this position where he's stuck. What do I do? I just sort of have to wait. There's no good options on the table. Have you ever felt that way in life? Stuck? You don't know what God wants you to do next? It doesn't seem clear where he wants you to go and there's really no good options on the table. Maybe for you it's your marriage. You're in a difficult marriage. You know God doesn't want divorce, but yet you and your spouse continue to fight all the time. What are you supposed to do? You're stuck. Or maybe for you, it's your job. Uh, you don't like your job at all, but you can't afford to leave your job. God, what am I supposed to do? I'm stuck. You don't know the way forward. When we find ourselves stuck and not knowing which way to go, David actually wrote a psalm about that, what to do when we're stuck. It's Psalm 37. And I'll just read you a section of the psalm, but I'll give you a summary of what God wants us to do when we're stuck. It's pray, trust, wait, and in the meantime, avoid sinful choices. Here's a section of Psalm 37 that David wrote about what to do when we're stuck. Commit your way to the Lord and trust in him. He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires. At this point in David's life, he has to follow the advice of his own psalm. Pray, wait, trust, and avoid making a sinful choice. God, you're the only one who can make a way forward in this messy situation where Ishbosheth won't step off the throne. Let's find out what happens. We begin with the first verse we'll call Panic at Mahanaim. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. If I was Ishbosheth, I would have been stressed and depressed when Abner chose to defect from me and went to the opposite side. I mean, that was the key man. But when you find out that Abner defected to David's side and he was killed right after he arrived there, that would really stress you out. I mean, what is Joab going to do next? Is he going to march north? Is he going to assassinate me? What am I supposed to do? These are the thoughts that are going through Ishbosheth's mind. And it says that his courage failed at this point. The Hebrew is actually a little more graphic. It says his hands dropped. The picture is somebody who's in a boxing match. You, know, you keep your hands up when you're in the fight, but if somebody is really just done and they just give up, what do they do? Hands go down. Just hit me, I'm done. I give up. That's exactly what's happened to Ishbosheth. His courage has completely failed. It says also here that all Israel was dismayed. I uh, like the way one commentator wrote about this. It says, dismayed is probably not a, a good word for us because we don't use that in everyday language. He said, all Israel was really terrified is the way to put it. What were they terrified about? Well, Abner, the strong man who had been Saul's commander and leader for so many years was now dead. Ishbosheth, the king, turns out to be a complete lily-livered coward who's not doing anything but hiding in the corner. Oh, what are we going to do with this? Now, as I was studying, I ran across a little comment on this section written by John Calvin. And some of you are like, John Calvin, does he go to Spirit Lake? Uh, who's he? Uh, no, John Calvin, and the, way I'm, the one I'm talking to, was actually a pastor from the 1500s, very gifted man, and he wrote a number of sermons, and he's written some things on 2 Samuel, and he said this about this section. Ishbosheth and his followers show us how easily overthrown are the wicked who seem to pose a threat to God's people. Let us not doubt when we see the enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ in power that it will take nothing to make them a broken people who do not know which way to turn because they do not have God on their side and they cannot call on him. What he's doing is he's hearkening back to the beginning of this civil war when it looked so lopsided between the northern kingdom with 11 tribes and the southern kingdom with one tribe and it looked like things were not going to go well. But it didn't go that way. It went the opposite way. And remember he's saying that Abner knew he was rebelling against God's declared will about who should be king. Everybody knew it. Ishbosheth knew he was rebelling against God's word about who should be king, which was David. He knew it. 
And during those two years of civil war, God slowly crippled, crumbled the northern kingdom and he built up the southern kingdom. Now, as Abner and Ishbosheth's kingdom crumbled, they really didn't have any hope or prayer to call out to God for help, did they? Because they were in direct disobedience to him. But David, and we followed him for a while, who's gone through some very difficult portions of his life, could he call out to God for help? Could he? Most definitely. Because God was committed to him. God was going to carry him through. But God had not committed to carry through and save Ishbosheth or Abner. And then I thought to myself, as I read John Calvin's comments, isn't this true for us today? Isn't it true that in the world we live in, there's many powerful people, many people with godless agendas, godless plans. We live in the, the woke, woke world where the church, God's people seem so weak. We, we seem so powerless. We seem so helpless. But we need to look at it from a big picture. The woke world we live in with the godless people with their agendas, God is not committed to their success. They cannot pray to God and ask for help to forward their agenda. But God's people, who he loves, God's people that he died for, he loves you, he died for you. We can pray to him, we can call out to him and he will answer us and he will sustain us. What does the Lord's prayer say? You know, you pray for God's kingdom come, God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know at the end of the day, who wins? The woke world and the woke leaders or Jesus? Jesus. So take heart, be encouraged. It is nothing for God to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel and crumble them, and it's nothing for God to destroy the woke world and people with godless agendas and to sustain and carry his people home all the way to heaven and the new creation. Be encouraged, even when it looks like there's so many things against us. The story continues about Ishbosheth's two men. And the author wants us to understand in this section how crippled and how weak Ishbosheth's hold on power has become. Uh, his strength now lies in these two men. Now Saul's sons had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banna, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gittim and have been sojourners there to this day. Isbosheth is now counting on the strength of two men who run raiding bands. These are the snatch and grab guys, uh, the purse snatchers, you know, the car thieves. We're not talking he's counting on the strength of actual military and soldiers. He's been reduced to these thugs that he's working with. And it also gives us some detailed history on their family. And you're thinking, why would I care about their family? Here's what he's saying. We know that when Joshua conquered the promised land, you remember the Gibeonites? 
they sort of uh, pretended to be from a country far away and they told Joshua, we're from a country far away, we'd like to make peace with you and then Joshua entered into a peace agreement with them and it turned out that the Gibeonites were actually their neighbors, not from a country far away. When you study this out, the Berethites had also joined the Gibeonites in that ruse. And so they were not the original inhabitants. They were not wiped out of the promised land by Joshua. Now, we'll get to this later in 2 Samuel. But we find that what Saul did is Saul broke that peace treaty between the Gibeonites and the Israelites, and he decided to kick the Gibeonites and the Berethites out of the promised land, and he did that with fellow Benjamite soldiers. And once they did that, the Benjamites sort of up, they occupied this place called Beeroth. In other words, saying that even though uh, Rimon and his sons are not located with the tribe of Benjamin, they're located far away in the Beerothite area, they're actually family. They're actually related. What would you expect from family? Loyalty, trustworthiness, faithfulness. That is what Isbosheth should expect from these guys. But as we're going to see, that's not what he's going to get from these guys. And then all of a sudden, we find a verse about a guy named Mephibosheth. Let's read him. Read about him. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. We don't know exactly where this fell, or this happened, or exactly what happened. But we know that when the news came of King Saul's death and Jonathan's death and the two other uncles he had, people in Saul's family were freaked out because they knew the Philistines were coming specifically to eliminate them. People were running for their life. It looks like uh, Mephibosheth was around five years old at this point. He was picked up by his nurse who ran and fell broke his back, and he became paralyzed. This picks up seven years later. Mephibosheth would be 12 years old. And what we've seen already is this theme, this theme that God has been crumpling and crushing the northern kingdom. We see there's only one person who's Saul's son that's on the throne. That's Ishbosheth. If you go to the next generation, grandchildren, there's only one grandchild, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth has also been crippled. And he cannot serve as a king. Number one, he's only 12 years old. Number two, he's a cripple. And as a cripple, he could never lead his people into battle. So we're going to see a lot more about Mephibosheth. Uh, later on, but the reason he is introduced to us at this moment is to understand that even the next generation has been crippled, so there can no longer be a challenge to David's reign. Now let's read about Ishbosheth's death. 
Now the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, uh, Rechab and Banna, set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ish-bosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. They arrived at Ish-bosheth's house at the time when he was taking his regular afternoon nap. Real convenient. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Remember, these guys are relatives. They're family. Nobody would suspect them to become Isbosheth's assassins. They pretend to get wheat, just going to the kitchen, going to get some food, and they stab him in the stomach. Now, this is interesting. The history tends to repeat itself. Last week, wasn't it two brothers, Job and Abishai, that killed Abner? This week, it's two brothers, Rechab and Banna, who kill Ishbosheth. And there also seems to be this thing where everybody seems to get stabbed in the stomach. Notice that? Asherel got stabbed in the stomach. Abner got stabbed in the stomach. Now Ishbosheth gets stabbed in the, the stomach. There's a, something else fun going on here. The Septuagint adds a little bit more detail that's not found in the original Hebrew. Now you may wonder, Septuagint, who is that guy? The Septuagint is simply a Greek translation of the original Hebrew text that was published around the time of Jesus for Greek-speaking Jews who were rusty in their Hebrew. So there is a translation they could understand. Now, the Septuagint occasionally adds more details that are not found in the original Hebrew. I don't know if these are actually true details, but somewhere in history, these words were part of this story. Let me read to you what the Septuagint says. And by the way, that's found in your ESV footnote if you want to check it out. And behold, the doorkeeper of the house had been cleaning wheat, but she grew drowsy and slept, so Rechab and Banna, his brother, slipped in. In other words, Ishbosheth, for being the king of the northern 11 tribes, had grown so weak that the only person running security in his house was a woman who actually doubled as the cook. And she was so good at it, she was asleep when they arrived. Now, the story continues. Then Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. The assassination went off without a hitch. Now, this is a pivotal moment. The last remaining resistance to David being king, which is Ishbosheth, the counter king in the north who wouldn't step off the throne, is dead. In Hebrew, where they're trying to make a point, they want you to emphasize and notice, what they will do is repeat themselves. Incidentally, that's what we do. You have kids, you're trying to make a point for them, right? You repeat yourselves multiple times. So as we go to the next verse, it's going to sound like it's just a repetition of the previous verse with a few more details. But the reason it's a repetition is it's not a misprint. It's a point of emphasis to notice the significance of what has just happened. Here's the repeat. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death, and they beheaded him. They left with a souvenir, his head. Now, there's lots of interesting application for us to look at at this point. 
Ishbosheth and Abner, they knew very clearly that David was declared to be the next king. Abner fought against that for seven years. Ishbosheth, he fought against that for the last two years. Eventually, Abner, we know, defected and went to the right side, but he went to the right side for the wrong reasons. Ishbosheth, though, refused to step aside, even though he knew he was directly disobeying God's word. And during that time of disobedience, during that time of Ishbosheth and Abner's rebellion, what was God doing to their kingdom? Slowly crushing it, crippling it, destroying it. So the only thing left for security in his own house was the cook in the kitchen. And I thought to myself, isn't this the way God works for us? We sometimes know exactly what God's will is and what God's word is on things. And God wants us to repent. He wants us to obey him and come to him, but we stubbornly refuse, we stubbornly resist. And what does God sometimes start to do at that point? He starts to cripple us, starts to crush us, starts to ruin things around us. And that's not because he hates us, is it? It's because he loves us. It's because he's trying to bring us to the end of ourselves. So we repent and turn back to him. Now, Ishbosheth didn't repent. He never stepped off the throne. And finally, God said, you know, the wages of sin is death. Enough is enough. You're done. But if you're here this morning and you're in one of those situations where you know you've been resisting the Lord, you know what his will is, and you've been going in the opposite direction, and you've seen the Lord start to slowly crush your life, maybe bring difficulties around you, know he's doing it because he loves you. He's doing it because he's trying to get your attention. He's doing it so you will repent and turn back to him. The story continues. And they took his head and went by way of the Arabah all night. In other words, they went south and they did it by night so nobody could see what they went because where they went because they happened to have the, the king's head in their backpack. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Oh, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. First thing to notice is they called David king. What they were doing was defecting to the other side, just like Abner had done. And they were recognizing David as the legitimate king. But there's some other things they were saying that weren't quite the right way to think. They said Saul has been David's enemy. And they know that Saul has constantly tried to take David's life. They know Ishbosheth has been David's enemy. Ishbosheth kicked off a civil war against David. So it's true that Saul was David's enemy, or Saul saw David as an enemy. Ishbosheth saw David as an enemy. But it doesn't go the other way, does it? Did David make Saul his enemy? No. Did David make Ishbosheth his enemy? No. David had refused to send his troops north and to fight against Ishbosheth. Remember, he said, I'm just going to pray. 
I'm just going to wait and God will make a way. Here's where the application comes in. When you and I find ourselves in conflict, it can be one-sided. It doesn't have to be two-way. People may dislike you. People may want to get rid of you. People may speak against you. Uh, People can posture themselves as your enemy, but you do not have to be their enemy. We can choose to love our enemies. We can choose to do good to our enemies, even as our enemy does evil to us. That's what David had done to Saul. That's what David had done to Saul's descendants. He did not return evil back. Look what Jesus says. Love your enemies and do good and lend and expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Or Paul says this in Romans 12. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Or Matthew 5:44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's what David did. Even though people saw him as an enemy, he refused to see them as an enemy. Now, here's a point of application, essentially summarizing that up. If you want to write this down, this is a good one. As a righteous man and woman, man or woman, they do good for their enemies and they trust God with the outcome. A righteous man and woman does good for their enemies and they trust God with the outcome. That's what David did. Now, the next part is they present David with Ishbosheth's head. And they claim it's a gift from the Lord, that God is the one who has carried out vengeance on David's enemies. In other words, these guys are trying to justify the fact that they murdered Ishbosheth and saying what they did was actually carrying out God's will. Because they know that David is the one to be king, and Ishbosheth just won't get off the throne to let it be possible. Now, God did judge Ishbosheth. God did remove him as, as king, but that did not justify these guys murdering Ishbosheth in his bed. That was evil. That was wrong. Now, here's where an interesting principle comes out. God can use and will use the acts of wicked men to advance his kingdom and his purposes. But wicked men are still responsible for their sinful actions and God will still judge them. Just because you see a right result, it does not justify a sinful action to get there. Never do an evil thing to try and get a good result. And when somebody does an evil thing, they're still responsible for their actions. Here's an example. Judas was instrumental in the betrayal of Jesus. He betrayed an innocent man. He betrayed the very son of God. He had seen all of Jesus' miracles. 
Well, that betrayal led to Jesus going to the cross and dying in our place for our sins, which is a good thing. But was Judas still responsible for the evil he did to betray Jesus? Yes, very clearly. In fact, it says it'd be better if he had not even been born. It was so evil. So God took the evil act of Judas, for which he is fully responsible, and he brought about a good thing with it. Now that doesn't mean that justifies evil things. Just that God can take evil choices of sinful people and do amazingly good things out of them. Let's go back to the message from the king, which is the next verse. But David answered Rechab and Banna his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, and I had to stop right there, even though it's mid-sentence. David is saying to these guys, you need to understand, I didn't need your evil and sinful act of murdering Ishbosheth to make me king. God has been faithful to me in the past. He has redeemed my life out of every adversity I faced. Remember the Paul the lion and the Paul the bear? David said, God saved me from that. Remember David and Goliath? God saved him in that thing. David never had to do an evil act to result in a good thing. God always took care of him. As David said in Psalm 37, what he needed to do was simply pursue righteousness, be faithful, and then when there's a problem that doesn't see a way forward, it's pray, wait, trust, and don't take an evil option to get a good result. Now, this is where there's some application for us. Are you stuck in life right now? Are you having a hard time figuring out what is a right way forward? What is a, a good way forward? Maybe, like I said earlier, maybe it's your marriage. It's a, a difficult thing. You know you shouldn't divorce, you shouldn't separate, but you fight. How do you get forward? You do not need to do a sinful choice to get a good result. Pray, wait, trust, and God will make a way. David did not need to kill Saul. He prayed, waited, and trusted, and what happened? God eventually took care of Saul for him. So David's fingers were never dirty. David's fingers were never sinful. And the same thing is true for you and for me when we find ourselves in those tough situations where we don't know a way forward. John Calvin writes about this, our guy from the 1500s. He says, whenever we are tempted to evil under the excuse of ridding ourselves of worry or anguish or of having remedy for our own troubles, let us remember, has not God taken care of us up to now? Since God has been so merciful to us and we've been saved by his hand so many times, should we abandon our trust in him now? Has God ever let you down? Have there been plenty of times where you didn't see a way forward? You didn't know how you'd make it into the future? Did God take care of you? Did God make a way? If he's been faithful in the past, he'll be faithful in the future. When you see a sinful option to get a good thing, don't go there. 
David says this about him trusting in the Lord to make a way. Back in 1 Samuel 24, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. See it uh, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Here's David saying, I don't need to get even with you. I just need to trust the Lord. He'll take care of the problems that I face. Or then in 1 Samuel 26, David says this about the dispute between him and Saul. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today. I could have killed you. And I would not put my hand out against the Lord's anointed. It's not my job to do an evil thing to get a good result, to put me in the kingship. Back to our text. David says, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which is the reward I gave him for his news. This is David going back to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Maybe you were with us in that message when an Amalekite uh, took King Saul's crown and armband after he saw him dead on the battlefield, went to Ziklag and told David that King Saul was dead. And then he lied and sort of inflated the truth saying, oh, by the way, I killed him, thinking that he was gonna be seen as the hero. And David said, you're not a hero. If you're the one that killed King Saul, you're a murderer. And David judged him and he died on the spot. And David says, I, this happened about seven years before and it's the same answer for the same thing. Rechab and Banna, you think you guys are going to be seen as heroes for getting rid of my adversary, Ishbosheth, Saul's own son? You're not heroes that I needed. You're murderers that need to go. This is what he says. How much more than wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed? Shall I not now require his blood of your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. David took the bodies of Rechab and Banna with their hands cut off, hung them by the public pool where people got water like a billboard. It's a way of saying David is a different kind of king. He won't tolerate people doing evil and sinful things to try and get a good result. I'm a righteous king. We're always going to do things the right way to get the right result and pleasing God first of all and most of all. Now there's four quick applications that we've uh, teased out a little bit through this text. I'm going to just sort of bring them back here at the end. Number one, we saw this. Avoid sinful choices to achieve good goals. It's never right to make a sinful choice to try and achieve a a good result. Number two, when people, while people are fully responsible for their sinful choices, God overrules sinful choices and incorporates them as part of his good plan to establish his kingdom. This is a little bit of a mind bender. People are still responsible and will be judged by God for their sinful choices, 
But even when bad things happen, and they do all kinds of bad things, that does not divert God's good plan to establish his kingdom. And for that reason, we never, never have to lose hope. No matter how weird this world looks, no matter how far things have gone, God takes those bad things and incorporates them into his plan to establish his kingdom. And I hope, yeah, I, I was studying this week, I'm saying, amen. And then I looked back at the news. Oh God, thank you that you can use all this to somehow achieve your goal and purposes. Number three, when there is no God-honoring way forward, God calls us to pray, trust, and wait. That's what David wrote about in Psalm 37. God will make a way if we pray, trust, and wait for him. Last thing is this. God extends what is called theologically severe mercy. Sometimes he cripples his people to turn them back to him. That's what God had done to the northern kingdom. For the two years of civil war, he slowly crippled the northern kingdom, crippled Ishbosheth. Remember, he was reduced to having nobody but the cook as his security for his house. And even after Ishbosheth, the only remaining heir of Saul was literally a cripple. So what happened is God removed all the options for God's people of where they could turn. So the only place God's people could turn would be to David because David was the one they wanted king or the one that God wanted king and David was the only one who could save them. So in all of this crippling of the northern kingdom, God was not being harsh on them. He was being good to them to bring the entire nation to the king they needed. And folks, as I said earlier, that's sometimes the way God works with us. The only king we need and the only king who can save us is Jesus, the son of David. And sometimes we persist and insist on rebelling and going our own way and doing our own thing. And as part of that, sometimes God will cripple us, bring us to the end of ourselves, not because he hates us, but because he loves us and is removing every other option in our life. So the only place left we have to turn is to the Jesus that we desperately need and the only one who can save us. This morning, Maybe you're somebody who's in that spot. Maybe your world has been falling apart around you. You say, God, why are things going so bad? But did you notice that when things are going really bad, you're on your knees praying and seeking him a lot more? Maybe God is knocking everything else out around you because he's drawing you to himself, the king that we desperately need, Jesus Christ the one who can save us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your severe mercy that sometimes you uh, bring us to the end of ourselves to bring us to yourselves. That even in those hard times, there is goodness. Thank you that we never have to sin. We never have to make a bad choice to get a good result like Rechab and Banna thought they needed to do to bring the kingdom into David's hands. But if we would just pray, trust, and wait, you will always provide a way for your people to be exactly where you want them, 
to be able to accomplish the will that you have for them. Just like you took Saul out of the way for David, you will take out of our way any obstacles that are keeping us from accomplishing the will that you have for our lives. We can pray, wait, and trust for you to do that with confidence. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.